2: It is 87 storeys high, which equates to 309 metres, just over 1,000 feet, and the Shard is currently the tallest building in the European Union. So much we know. A little nugget, though, did you know that Southwark Towers that it replaced, which were built in 75 and knocked down in 2008, was the tallest building ever to have been demolished in the UK? Nothing to do with today's show, which is all about booze. And uh, particularly cocktails. We're heading high above Borough to ask what's going on in London's cocktail scene. It's the 24th of January 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and this is Londonist Out Loud.
0: Hey, baby, let me take you down. So we'll play some strange sights and sounds. You
3: ain't never seen the light before. Just slams through from your front.
2: Well, oh, hello, hello. We've got the ideal conditions for recording an episode of Londonist Out Loud here. Uh, we're in a glass-panelled room, which, as any fool know, is not good for sound. We have, on the plus side, got delicious food on the table, a fantastic guest to introduce you to, and a view to die for. We're 31, I think, stories up the Shard. We're in Aqua, which is a place to behold. It's a bar, there's food going on here, and we're with the bar's manager, Miles Donachy, and with Janan Jay, who writes for Londonist. She writes on cocktails. She presents online on cocktails. She's very much used to interviewing people who do what Miles does for a living, so I may be able to take the episode. Off. how are you both
4: very well thank you
5: yes very well
2: thank you do you know what i can nod off with this music this is absolutely wonderful it's dreamy uh, and this is a really a dreamy experience we're looking down over a slightly overcast london it's getting on for four o'clock in the afternoon and a gentle mist seems to have settled over it. it's that sort of pre-rain slightly gray day we have a table covered with scones in front of us janan it's a silly question but why are we here
4: Well, we're here to talk about the amazing cocktail culture in London. Um, As you kindly introduced, I write about cocktails, write about drinks. It's something that I'm passionate about. And it's so exciting. Uh, London is really embracing not only cocktails uh, for for the first time in forever, but we're getting really excited about... Interesting concepts. So, Basement State is one of, I think it's one of the only dessert bars in London that launched not long ago. Everyone got really, really enthusiastic about it. People are not only looking at food and drink in a traditional way anymore, like when Swingers came out and that was kind of like a mini golf kind of restaurant bar kind of thing going on. Again, people got really excited about it. One of my friends tried to go the other day and it's booked out until something ridiculous like March. And we're not only seeing that with exciting concepts, I'm kind of going backwards on myself now, but we're also seeing that with traditional concepts, like, for example, with, um, like, Five Guys, uh, Shake Shack, uh, Meat Mission, when they all launched, I mean, they are just meat places. Uh, They are kind of burger places, rib places. When they launched, the queue to get in was about an hour, so we're seeing a real food and drink renaissance, and it's wonderful that cocktails are are forming a real big part of that, and that's why it's... brilliant to be here and be with Mars.
2: <laughs> we will get the insider's line on Aqua in just a second, but how does Aqua fit into the picture you're describing?
4: It's it's iconic. I think the one way you can put it is it's iconic. It's known for serving great food, amazing cocktails. It just fits in well with the whole London dynamic as well. I have an amazing view like this. How can how can it not?
2: Well, what's outside is certainly uh, impressive, being one of the most vibrant cities in the world, but the, the place itself has got a fantastic vibe to low lighting and uh, what what seemed at first glance to be quite a sophisticated clientele you're the bars manager how many bars are there what's the uh, range of your work here
5: well, we have two in the one which is for dispensing for our restaurant and one which serves the lounge or the atrium. Uh, we then I also look after Hutong, which is our northern Chinese restaurant, uh, which is two floors above us. And again, same setup. We have a bar for the lounge area and we also have a bar to dispense to the restaurant.
2: Ah, now, does this mean there's a corporate uh, monster company behind a lot of the places in the, in the shard, or this happens to be a pairing of a couple of hangouts?
5: It's just a pairing of a couple of hangouts. Actually, uh, the the owners wanted to take two of the restaurants in the Shard um, because they, they liked the, the building and they saw that it would, their concept would work really well in the space that was allowed for us in the Shard. Um, so they went for two instead of one, which is great. It's fantastic for us.
2: you uh, was talking about the, the updating, I guess, of some of the traditional ideas about food. I think some of the core ideas behind certainly some of the dishes that we'd find here at Aqua are traditional. What's the twist
5: Well, it's a contemporary twist. I mean, Anthony's comes from a background of very kind of delicate and subtle flavour. The way that he cooks is not really contemporary British almost, but the restaurant is. And so he's taken on this task to twist what most people view as English food or British food with roasts and pies and meats and heavy kind of flavour. And he's put his own kind of contemporary, subtle, delicate twist on it. Um, And what you get is, is fantastic. And that's... That's why the people come. That's why they love it.
4: No, it's brilliant what you were just saying about contemporary twists on British food. Again, it's amazing that we are no longer the culinary laughing stock of the world. It's amazing. Whenever you see a, a contemporary comedian or, or sitcom, usually from overseas like America, joke about our food, you can kind of smugly sit back and go, you don't know what you're talking about. Because we, we, are, we are smashing it. If you look at the 50 Best Bars Awards as well, I mean, leading on from food... Uh, we're brilliant we're doing a fantastic I mean, night jar was was third Happy forgets I think was twelfth we've got sixty nine corbro row we 've got all these amazing bars, all these amazing restaurants and it's just so so wonderful to actually have a, cu- a culinary movement in our own right it's nice I know that we have that you have a northern uh, Chinese bar and again that's brilliant but it's so nice to be able to be so established and confident in our own cuisine we can take it and run with it and make it modern and twist it and be taken seriously.
2: So something I've certainly become aware of over 15, 20 years is a change from it being, as, as you were discussing, these kind of stodgy ingredients, chips and uh, pies and, and what have you. And they're using lighter material. They're using better quality ingredients. You know, the chips might be cut more finely. It might be a better cut of pork that you get with your roast and, and all that stuff. How does that translate when it comes to cocktails? Because pr- presumably there isn't quite the range in the ingredients available, right?
5: Well, I think it it, it kind of actually sets the top quality cocktail bars around London to ones that are trying to aspire to. Fresh ingredients is always something that um comes first for bartenders. You have your primary ingredients and that is literally fresh, natural flavour. Um, we've got Bar and Market just outside so we're very lucky to to run down and grab stuff from there which the bartenders are always constantly doing.
2: What what sort of thing have you in mind when you say
5: that? Um, just it's seasonal fruits so at the moment we've been using a lot of stone fruits plums and apricots that are really ripe and fresh and um, you go down, go down to the Bar Market you can pick these straight up and they're, they're very succulent and juicy um, I think a, a trend that was going through uh, the cocktail scene in London was homemade ingredients and this is very key in making good quality homemade ingredients because you need very fresh produce to carry through the flavour so there's no artificial flavour there I think a lot of top bartenders around town um, they know what they're talking about in terms of flavour uh, they've got strong palates and it's very obvious what is a fantastic homemade ingredient and what is you know, something that was rushed or not really taken seriously what about where the booze
2: itself is concerned
5: well it's just about pairing that i mean one of the first places i worked was um, a restaurant called SAF in shoreditch and it's a vegan restaurant so in terms of learning about natural flavor it was all herbs spices fruits and veg and then basically having to take that and pair it with all kinds of alcohol um to, to create beverages so it's uh it's just the case of pairing really
2: I suppose with both of you, I need to find out what the drive was that, that brought you to uh, this level of immersion in alcohol, if, if I can put it around that way. Uh, Jenna, you've been immersed in alcohol, I believe, for, for quite a while.
4: <laughs> I think I'm quite heavily pickled by this point. It's preserved me quite well, though. I do. Um, well, I think I think being English, Irish, Polish, Russian, it would be a travesty not to. Miles, how about you? Um, I mean, I
5: started young, uh, my first job, I was 14 in a men's tailors, and I just loved the customer service, so it kind of came from that. And as Oh,
2: nothing to do with alcohol at all, necessarily?
5: No, I really, really liked the interaction with guests, but then I started working for my mum's friend's wedding company, and uh, I was on the floor again, really enjoying the interaction with guests at about 15, but then I saw, you, when you well, I was waiting on the floor, but then the evening came, and the sun went down, and suddenly, like, six guys very handsome dudes would walk out and go on the bar and i was like well what are they what are they doing they just seem to be having a lot more fun than me on the floor and you know i got chatted to these bartenders and the way that they were mixing cocktails and the way that they were interacting with guests and making people happy and having fun was was what i wanted to do so i kind of sacked off the waiting and then went straight onto the bar um and then as the more you learn about alcohol and cocktails and the history and kind of the community as well around it that uh you kind of become submersed in it and you kind of kind of don't really lose track of what you're doing and until now really having this conversation so yeah
2: i mean, intrigued by the idea of a community around it what's mm. uh, what, what does that mean
5: well it's just the industry really right now um it's very it's very warming i think that i think if you go to somewhere like aqua or savoy or some of the big hotels around town that have got a lot of five-star tradition and the uniform is very smart and you know a lot of these guys are are young and fun and you know a lot of the like the bartenders will have tattoos and they'll be into all kinds of things and very cultured and you'll see them in dive bars around Shoreditch, etc. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what background you're from or where you're going. It's kind of just chatting about the history behind drinks and the socializing aspect of it and enjoying serving people, I guess. Jananne is nodding vigorously.
4: I'm nodding emphatically because, I, yeah, I totally agree, especially on the welcoming aspect because, as, as you all know, I write for Londonist. You're right about food and drink, cocktails. You never really switch off, and it's nice to, to go to a bar and say, "Look, I'm I'm not I'm not working. I'm just having a drink." But then you invariably you all start talking about everything that you do. Like, for example, I can imagine with with you Miles, the, the bar that you work with and what you do and everything. And it's just it, it's hard to have a day off, but I mean that in the most affectionate way. It's just lovely to be able to go to a bar, and it's just so nice, again, as a woman, to kind of go to a bar, sit down, and order an old fashioned, like a pretty manly drink, just basically just bourbon and ice, and just have no one think anything of it. And it's wonderful and exciting, and these are two words I'm going to keep coming back to.
2: That brings up an interesting uh, prospect in my mind because I've got a fairly good idea of what a, a typical pub is like. I'm quite a pub creature, open fire, pint of bitter, that kind of thing. So, cocktail bars, not normally my kind of scene. And I want to know about the stereotyped personnel that you could expect to find in a cocktail bar. You've brought up the prospect of one or two slightly sleazy players knocking about in those sort of places. I'm sure we don't find anything like that in Aqua. But with your experience of various bars around the place, which sort of personnel might we meet?
5: I don't like to label it because I feel. Well, obviously, part of my job is not to prejudge, and you know, I welcome every single person that comes into my bar, and I want my staff and my managers to also act like that because that is that is hospitality, that is looking after people from all walks of life. But I don't think there really is a kind of category for cocktail bars. It depends on what style of bar you're going to. Um, if you are going to a speakeasy. Um, in East London, you are probably going to find a few cool kids knocking around and having an, having a good time. A speakeasy is basically a contemporary twist of something that did actually exist in, in the 20s, and it's a prohibition cocktail bar. Uh, speakeasy was the term for basically being quiet, so no one would know it was there. But when alcohol was illegal, um, then these bars would pop up um, in, in various shacks and, and places and basements, um, to serve alcohol.
2: Uh, so is this this trend I've seen where you've got to go down a flight of steps and knock on a door three times and then somebody will let you in
5: maybe? Exactly, spin round, touch your toes and jump up and down and then they let you in. It's colossally inconvenient though, surely? I mean, it depends what you're looking for. I think if, as the person I'm sitting next to right now is not trying to get a hit on, then it's great for that. You know, it's, uh... well
2: Because nobody else has managed to find the bar.
4: And, uh, but also it, it goes, it's, it's fun. Yeah. It goes back to this concept yeah. of fun. I mean... Uh, there is there is something slightly kind of whimsical about sitting in a bar that was modelled after Al Capone's living room pretending that you're drinking a gin ricky that's illegal It's uh, London is such a playful city as uh, we prefaced earlier with the mini golf place and the dessert bar and people, especially with like the, the economic crash which is invariably what everything in our modern society goes back to I think people just do want to have fun uh, the mayor of Skady Cat town for example you go in and say I would like to see the mayor and they lead you down into a fridge um, happiness forgets is not signposted at all and, and underneath a cafe and um, they all escape me now you want to go to the back bar you've got to go through a wardrobe And it is fun, and it is cheap.
2: Have you, however, just ruined the business model for all three of those places by publicising what you've got to do? Um, They're not cool anymore now, are they? Because (laughs) now that's widely known.
4: Well, I I would agree with you, had it not been for the fact that it's been flagged up many times in Metro, independent Londonist. I mean, Ben Norum, who's a good friend of mine, who I work very closely with, I mean, we're both huge fans of these places, and and we do. Um, When it comes to a place that I really, 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 really love, I don't tell anybody... I mean, I love these places, but I do. I know that you keep a couple close to your heart, and when you st- when you stop rolling, I will tell you.
5: I think that. Uh, the- with it goes in these magazines and it is out there, the information is there to be had. And it is kind of the characteristic of who you are, whether you want to go grab that. So if you live in London, you want to be part of the playful kind of culture that is out there, you will see it, you'll read it and you'll go there. But a lot of people will see it in the metro. They'll skip past it because they're not interested in it. So what you get is basically at the bars that you've just named is the same the one characteristic that kind of brings all these people together to go to a speakeasy or somewhere hidden or somewhere fun like the pop-up golf is is basically just looking to have fun and having a, have a good time so and that's kind of why they're there i know
2: that one of the things that the savoy has been keen to do is get more people through the door because there's been a bit of a a reluctance i think on the part of some people to feel that that belongs to them in any way that they shouldn't go in and uh, so there's been a bit of a mental barrier that's the Savoy have thought maybe they should try and break down and indeed with cocktails there's the idea of it being a little bit of a, a higher ticket drink it's got a sense of exclusivity is that ever to the detriment of a business that's purveying cocktails
5: I mean, I think throughout history it's kind of been like that. I think, you know, the the big hotels is, has always been you know, slightly more pricier than your local pub and as a result that obviously brings in a certain clientele. I think that the, the way the industry is going right now is that we want to welcome in people to our bars from all walks of life and whether you have to put a suit on to go to that venue you know it's part of the experience you know it's it's really like anything you, if you go to a wedding you wear a suit you dress up you make the effort but you still have a great time and most probably going to be leaving not wearing that suit <laughs> or losing what it. <laughs> so
4: did <laughs> that expensive yeah
5: but uh, it is it just depends sorry no hold on what? <laughs> <laughs> you've been to a wedding and you came back without your suit or losing an item of
2: clothing through the night um Right, okay, This. never mind all this bar stuff. What happened at this wedding?
5: <laughs> no, it was just the lost jacket at uh, my cousin's oh. wedding. Um, but no. I, I don't actually believe him, either. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's all I'll say.
4: <laughs> you made it go red, you big meanie. <laughs>
2: another story lurking there we're going to go for a break and get a word from our sponsor and then we're going to be right back and i think i'm going to be asking about favorite cocktail recipes, maybe some london-centric cocktail recipes
1: londonist out loud is sponsored by audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of sixty thousand titles try the audible service on 30-day free trial audiobooks can be saved as mp3s and played on your compatible phone tablet or desktop or burned to cd and they're yours to keep for your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk/slash Londonist and click through.
2: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and we're up the shard. We're in Aqua and we're looking down on uh, London Bridge Station. We're looking towards Kent, I would say, with me, Miles Donicky and Jan Jay, uh, respectively the bars manager here at Aqua and the restaurant whose name will not be spoken during this uh, couple of floors up, just because we're at Aqua and you know. And uh, Janan Jay, she's a, a drinks writer, cocktail specialist, broadcaster, and uh, is immersed in booze.
4: Positively pickled. Positively pickled, as we said. I'm going to say that again. Positively pickled, as we said. Uh, yeah,
2: uh, having yeah. trouble with pronunciation. There we yeah, go. I think people, that proves oh, the point. My
4: name <laughs> so you try, try and have a go at that one?
2: <laughs> uh, Janan Janjewski.
4: Janjewski. Oh, it was good. Yeah, yeah I know.
2: I but you've changed your name to Janan Jay. Is this for others convenient?
4: Um, yes absolutely because uh, jay is my middle name and it's just a lot easier when if somebody's googling you or if you're on twitter and people and it's you know kind of snappy and i think my mother just had an obsession with jays i have a total of four J's in my whole name but no it just it just makes it easier and um, as yeah as certain people have told me it's more media darling it's more media
2: now you're you're a rare species uh if you don't mind my saying so in that working for london is you come from london
4: Yes, I'm Londoner born and bred. I was born in Paddington and brought up in a combination of areas, uh, Neasden, Greenford, Ryslip. Uh, I've lived in Putney, just moved out again, uh, looking to move again. And, uh, yeah, I spent, spent a lot of time here. And then I went and moved to... I lived in Tokyo for two and a half years came back and uh, absolutely, absolutely adore London. It's actually quite rare for me to be in one place any longer than on average 2.5 years because I studied in Canterbury, studied in Brighton. I get itchy feet quite a lot, I get quite bored, but there's definitely enough here to hold my interest, so I will be staying for rather a while longer. That
2: that is one of the wonderful things about London, isn't it, is that you can uh, manage to move to a different part of the same town and it's an entirely new experience.
4: Yeah, It's, it's incredible. It's amazing. I spend a lot of time in East London... And also you have a lot of other areas that are up and coming. You've got a lot of quite a few decent bars in Peckham. There's really good restaurants as well. If you look at the Begging Bowl, Bar Story. There's a Campari bar in a car park once every summer that's ran. Is that
2: Fr- Frankie's or Freddie's or something? Uh,
4: that's, yeah, that's Frank's, that's Frank's Campari bar. There's in a car park. Again, it's brilliant. It's exciting and fun. It's unlike anywhere else. I'm, if, I, if, if someone was to give me the option to live anywhere else in the world for six months, it would be New York. Because their bars are, are are banging, basically they're fantastic, and I had one of the best old fashions there. It was a uh, Benton's old fashioned. Please don't tell New York taking it away from London a little bit. Sorry, we'll, we'll turn it in a minute. And it was basically uh, four roses batch bourbon strained through bacon. It was incredible. It was it was the bomb. It was so good.
2: Does this sound like a, a good idea to you, Mark?
5: Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely on point. Um, uh, I've made uh, sparkling cocktails with light vermouth and smoked salmon with. Uh, At the moment, we've got a drink going on the menu here in two days with um, bourbon infused with mushroom, and then with apple juice, mustard and honey. So these flavours that are almost savoury are really quite tasty. It's that that play on sweet and sour, basically.
2: How do you go? I mean, honestly, that sounds disgusting. The idea of infusing a drink with mushroom.
5: Why would you do that? Well, it's, I think, with craft cocktails and, and looking at, like, Food as well is it's, it's all going down the same way really so it's just a case of balancing it with alcohol so that it is still tasty in a liquid form. No, no,
2: but that is the worst argument I've ever heard. I mean, you you, th- you think about all the things that you might eat during the course of a day, and to argue that it all goes down together, you wouldn't dream of putting some of those things with each other.
5: Um, well, actually, I mean, I was I was sitting at a friend's restaurant who works for the Gordon Ramsay restaurant group, and I had a starter which the chef had made for that day, which was um, walnuts, honey glazed walnuts on a, on sliced beetroots as well on top of that, and uh, a few other things on the side, but that was the main vocal point so those three ingredients i sat there and it was absolutely divine and i thought well i would love to make a drink with with this so it, it, we i did a twist on orja which is a french almond syrup and we made a, a, a honey walnut syrup so a twist on the classic syrup orja and then we paired that with beetroot juice and and two various different rums and a few other bitters and We mixed it together, and then there was born the Beetlejuice cocktail, which has been on our our menu for the last six months. So it it is – obviously some of them don't work, but there is inspiration.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free.
5: And for a lot of other dishes, for sure.
4: Again, it's, it's about boundary breaking. Again, going back to this whole concept of playfulness and experimentation. And it's really blurring the lines between food and drink. Again, it makes sense if we're having this big food renaissance and drinks is coming along with it. Of course, people are going to kind of meld the two together. And also, it's, it's not really... When you kind of sit back and, and look at it from a deconstructed point of view... It's not really that unusual. For for years and years and years, we've been pairing wine with food, and now there's a trend for cocktail pairing with food. Well, then why don't we just kind of just mesh it all together and have and have fun with it? Uh, mustard condiment cocktails were totally a thing. Bourbon and mustard. are The amazingly talented um, Andrea Montague. Uh, she came up with a cocktail uh bourbon and mustard. Bourbon and whiskeys go brilliantly with red meat. Red meat goes brilliantly with mustard. So in your mind, you're marrying all those things together. I went to uh, I went to Nobu a couple of days ago, had a caviar martini, absolutely absolutely flawed uh, by how delicious this was. It was used um, used a really high quality vodka. I think it was Stolly Elite, and what they've done. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier about homemade infusions, everything being homemade, everything kind of coming from scratch. Nobu have homemade caviar bitters they are the only they commissioned this to be made it's the only place in london where you can get this bitters for anyone who doesn't know has been explained to me rather succinctly as the salt and pepper of cocktails almost all of your favorite cocktails will have bitters in it in some way or another and again it just all ties up together it was beautiful it wasn't too salty it didn't taste artificial it was just pure booze and caviar which are two of my favorite things all right,
2: so I'm beginning to build up a little bit of a picture here of what the, the cocktail enthusiast might be about. So you'd be going to these uh, individual bars, and each place has a slightly different offering and, and an exclusive uh, flavor that you can only get there. So there's, some, there's a bit of collection going on as well, by the sounds of it.
5: Yeah, definitely. I think you go to the bar, that style of bar, and the drinks will reflect that. Um, if the really top quality venues around town will have something that all fits together it's like a package and you walk in and you walk into a a cool funky bar you want cool funky music you want cool funky drinks if you walk into somewhere which is very posh and elegant and all of the furniture is exquisite then you want very elegant delicate beautiful cocktails to go with that and and that music to reflect that you go to a basement bar with swing jazz and everything's a bit lively and a bit all over the place you kind of want again drinks that are all over the place and this is it should marry it definitely should marry here we're part of a restaurant so it seems fitting for me to have a few drinks on there that would have an influence of food i mean the the cocktails have, have have had the balance of that throughout time you know martinis served with olives Bloody Marys that have basil or celery or these kind of um, classic Italian pizza ingredients you know. It's, it, the next step would obviously be to look at maybe Parma ham in a Bloody Mary or, or something like that fresh basil etc so you're literally just following what makes sense in your head really and, um, and seeing if you can push the boundary but the main thing is to make a cocktail really that tastes great for people that are bartenders and drinks enthusiasts but also joe block in the street who doesn't get the concept but still thinks it's tasty so if i do make a chorizo bloody mary because one of my fav- favorite pizzas would be to have that on it it needs to still taste great without the drinks enthusiast being oh i see what he did there it still needs to be able to taste great uh,
2: this is a rather on the nose question in that case and it sounds as though you're catering to different markets potentially different constituencies what's the key to selling a cocktail
5: I think th- the, the name needs to make sense, completely sense. Um, so they, I mean, they famously never do. Um, yeah, but it, it needs to be some kind of link. Um,
2: well, yeah. I mean, explain some of the famous ones, those sort of sex with your screwdriver or whatever. <laughs> well,
4: uh, <laughs> that... No, I think that.
5: <laughs> I'm not sure if it's sex with your screwdriver, but definitely, I mean, every kind of drink, you can find a, a, a loose connection. Uh, the star Martini, obviously, is one of the most famous names around town, which is, you know, you're served with a, a shot of, of Prosecco or champagne. So it's not, it's not a classy glass of champagne. It's literally a, a shot, you know. So there is, there is a lot of tongue-in-cheek and fun. We had a drink here actually called Peter Rabbit and it was Cam and Sons, uh, and we were going with a savoury flavour again, so we had c- carrot juice, and we, made, we used lecithin to make a cucumber air. So again, Peter Rabbit, children's favourite storybook, the use of carrots and, and cucumbers, etc., paired with savoury flavour and, and alcohol. So it needs to almost make your heart like melt, almost, or it needs to make you laugh or smile, feel some kind of emotion um, before, before ordering it and then hopefully you don't get you don't get too uh, upset when a thing turns up
4: i i actually don't look at the names i go straight for the ingredients <laughs> i don't even bother to look at the names i just go right okay what's got bourbon in it what's got a good gin in it yeah. what's got what's got champagne in it I, I i go in thinking about what i feel like drinking but of course i'm again, again i'm open minded because it's part of my job so i can i can't be swayed but i won't ever look at the name until i've decided on on the ingre- if i look at some ingredients go right okay that looks great what's that called oh that's called a a a hippopotamus fling or whatever. Isn't that, isn't that weird? That was the first name I came yeah. up with. You just made that up? I totally just made that up. And it is also my life ambition to get a cocktail named after me as well. Nice. Hasn't happened yet. But, but not that I one. I'm Yeah, not here, but I'd be very upset if I've inspired the hippopotamus fling.
2: I find, you mentioned pizza. I find the same uh, problem with choosing a pizza, which is that when you look down the list of ingredients, if you don't go by the, the atmosphere that the name is trying to set, you just look at the ingredients. It's essentially the same ingredients in a slightly different order, and they'll take one out. And put a new one in as you go down the list. And they just kind of blur into one thing. So I guess the, the atmosphere setting, the naming of it could be quite important if you're not going for the key ingredient like that.
5: At a lot of time when I used to go to restaurants, I would go through the ingredients and pick out my favourite thing. But then I got into such a habit of almost eating the same thing that what I would do is, I know this was actually at Clou Calais, I started this but like five, four or five years ago, was going through the cocktail. I was, reading which ingredients I thought were great and then choosing one that wasn't that so <laughs> literally eliminating all the ones that I thought was uh, was going to be really tasty and then thinking right let's try this it's on the menu for a reason the bar manager is credible so so you th- go in you,
2: th- you thump your fist down and you say I'd yeah. like your sixth best cocktail exactly,
5: exactly what's the least most popular cocktail on your <laughs> list and i have two of them
2: <laughs> and, and what was the result of this experimentation
5: well you just broaden your, your palate and, um, and hate the drinks you drink yeah exactly and ask for a lot. Large glass of water on the side.
4: <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. I think it's very important to be open-minded, be very broad. And a lot of the times when I go into bars, I will, I will uh, almost always talk to the talk to the bartender or the floor staff. And again, the great thing about when you go to bars like Calais, their floor staff are so on it. Like Calais, Happiness forgets um, the Artesian, which deservedly won the best cocktail bar in the world award uh, earlier earlier this year they're just on it they know exactly what everything is they know exactly how to accommodate you and that's the most important thing about these bars a lot of people complain that cocktail bars are expensive and yeah they are they are quite pricey when you go into a bar you're not only paying for the ingredients you're paying for the bartender's expertise you're paying for the bar staff to help you out with what with what you want to order and that to me is a hallmark of a good place is of a good bar so if you don't know what you want someone else will know what you want that's the key and I, I, you said earlier that you don't frequent cocktail bars and I'm, I'm finding that that is still the case of a lot of people I think a lot of people just don't know where to start I make a lot of cocktails at home not to any standard that's in any way reasonable or acceptable or fit for consumption however when I do have guests I say to them right do you want something short do you want something sweet
2: would you like a hippopotamus fling would you
4: like a hippopotamus fling which is totally a, th- uh, totally a thing there you go it rhymes a poet didn't even know I was one.
5: <laughs> I completely agree, especially with the floor staff thing. Coming from a, an operational perspective as well, running a venue is it is so key. We have around sixty tables in our lounge. Around around about seventy percent of our guests that come through the door will sit at a table. And you know the whole kind of craft cocktail bartender scene is very. It's become so prominent because I think of the actual quality of the bartender the actual interaction the customer service but the actual sales pitch behind it you know that not being the kind of card salesman the dodgy salesman that doesn't really know what's behind him what whiskeys they're stocking or gins or where they come from and what they taste like, but actually knowing their back bar inside out and delivering the service and almost uh, tailor-making cocktails for your palate.
2: Is is that how it works? So if I was to uh, venture uh, intrepidly into a cocktail bar and you were behind the counter, would you look me up and down and think, well, this guy is probably going to drink something along these lines and put something together for me?
5: Yeah, I'd, I'd top it up with Guinness. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, no, I miss it. But it, it, I mean, you mean never prejudge someone coming into the bar. You just always have to say, like, what can I get from you? Would like to order from the menu or off? Or we can tailor-make anything. And the, the most important thing is your waiters and waitresses. And going back to Kaloo, Nightjar, and the rest of these top-quality bars is that a lot of their... Bartenders will do one shift on the floor per week and four on the bar. So then what you get is bartenders working the floor who actually work behind the bar are top quality bartenders, but you won't know that because they're waiting your table. So it's just a... And then as from that, that's when your training comes in and slowly they start passing on their expertise to other floor staff. Um, We do a huge amount of training here for our floor team who aren't actual career bartenders just to make sure that when they are conversing with people at the table they're not going to be thrown by any question and can actually give advice on drinks
2: Yeah, I want to throw a commendation out to the uh, staff here because the, the moment we arrived an attentive individual hoved forth from the shadows I was reminded of the uh, arrival of the droids in Jabba the Hutt's palace uh, <laughs> And the, the Gamorian guard of an attendant uh, came forth and uh, made sure that we were okay. And, and we uh, were looked after very nicely. The service is discreet, but clearly people know what they're about here. And that that's the kind of confidence that you need when you arrive in a place, because uh, you don't want to be left on your own. We need to turn our focus outside, though, in the, uh, the closing moments of the show. This view, have you got used to it yet?
5: Um, I'm going to say no, because... I only remember one time really taking it in, um, which was I arrived very, very early for an, for an event that we were doing. And it was very, very early in the morning. I think I was the only person on the floor and I had a cup of tea and managed to soak in looking north up to London over the river, which is, a, you know, one of the... I don't think people realise that in the shot is that you can look around the whole 360 building, but looking north towards the Walkie Tower... Walkie Talkie, sorry, and... Um, gherkin etc and looking over it's such an amazing view but you know when you know it's such a big operation that you're just kind of constantly running around and making sure everyone else is enjoying the view as opposed to yourself Uh, have you had moments
2: uh i don't know what sort of weather conditions or events that might have been going on have you had moments where you've been able to get a bird's eye view of something unusual
5: um, well, what was great actually was with the poppies um, over the ro- over the river, um, the poppy exhibition, which is fantastic. I went and saw it twice actually. It was you know from the Shard was like this massive red carpet, red sea almost of round around the Tower of London, which was you know quite a lot of people that first arrived when it, when it first opened were like, what is the red, the red the red bit round round that little building, um, and. People became quite accustomed to it. The other thing, of course, is looking down on fireworks. Um, this is quite a peculiar quite a peculiar observation i, I didn 't really know what was weird about looking at fireworks until I realized that I was standing above them so that's always, that was quite fun um, but other than that you know it's it 's constantly making sure the staff and the teams and the guests are all looked after so it's, i don 't really get to to get to indulge too much your focus is on the foreground uh, Janan how about this review
4: oh, it's incredible it's amazing I uh, by incidentally now looking down on fireworks is now on my bucket list I've just added that I'm gonna put a little footnote of your name next to it you inspired me no it's, it's just it's just unbelievable I have a big thing for views anyway I count myself very lucky that I don't have vertigo I regularly hang out at Paramount because uh, I'm freelance so I normally go and have like a coffee there at about four o'clock and get out my laptop and look very busy and important but really I'm just on Facebook uh, but that's also another stunning place if you want views it's just it's just such I'm just so in love with this city And if you are in love with the city, it's a good place to be.
2: I'm curious to know what else is on your bucket list, but I'm I'm not going to ask at this point, Uh, I think.
4: Ask it off air, ask it off air.
2: (laughs) Uh, We promised a London-centric cocktail recipe or two. Um, What comes to mind when you think of a drink that says something about London?
4: Gin. And also, ties in quite nicely... Um, I'm sorry if I picked you to the post but you think you'd be able to do something more creative than just say gin into the microphone. Is that your
2: cocktail Uh, ingredient list, just gin?
4: uh, Well, just gin, just a martini, just gin. No, because... But that's the thing. There is, in Hand in Hand with the Drink Renaissance, uh, gin has just exploded. Uh, The gin tours... uh, There's Leon Dalloway, who does the gin journey and does tours of distilleries. Uh, Again, very knowledgeable, very talented man, knows his stuff, knows exactly what he's talking about. And, uh, and it gets sold out and people go on it and it's been a roaring success, success as it should be because people are really into gin. Even Weatherspoons now do like a Gin Palace selection and they serve it with Fever Tree Tonic, which is a very high quality tonic, which is, you know, how you're supposed to drink gin if you're going to mix it, drink it with something that it deserves to be mixed with. And, and it goes back to like, the whole concept of London Dry in the gin craze and it's such it's so instilled in us no pun intended instilled distilled uh but it's it just anything with gin basically speaks to me of london and uh, a good martini which i like shaken and not stirred i'm not gonna let miles in the eye as i say that because i'm sure he's going to heckle me roundly
5: <laughs> no i wouldn't i wouldn't wouldn't judge you on that um... he, he is totally judging on so that no but i think what's great about london is that the trends you can you can definitely see the trends in what is popular in london and what is seen as cool or and that also reflects in people's palates as well you know you've had you had the cosmo and which was a huge london cocktail and the porn star martini then you've got the espresso martini which you know again is is a london classic born in london and you know you'll see that drank in any cocktail bar no matter where you go someone will have ordered that drink um and you know for at the moment uh, I think people's palates are tending towards more, more sort of bitter and savoury and you know the Negroni which is you know my personal favourite gin serve is a hugely popular cocktail very very dry very bitter um, the first time my little brother drank it you know he was like what is this using Campari and Sweet Vermouth and gin in one is it's a boozy drink it's very heavy very rich but you know people are drinking them like there's no tomorrow all over London and uh, it's also you know it used to be the bartender's favourite cocktail and I think you know what's great to see is that top quality bartenders around town are actually influencing the majority they are influencing their guests they're not coming in and letting the guests decide for themselves and go to their regular they're actually saying this is my favourite drink I would like it to be your favourite drink let's educate you in this way and what we've seen now is if you go to any cocktail bar in London you'll see three Negronis on any of the tables in yeah. in, in the bar which is fantastic and I'm, what I'm looking forward to seeing is over the next few years again bartenders pushing the savoury concept pushing the bitter concept and then educating their guests further still so that a, a new quality drink will become, you know, the most popular drink in London for the reason of bartender's education. It's, I think it's fantastic.
4: I have a really funny story based on what you said about the Negroni. I've got uh, a, f- a friend, a very good friend, she's a bartender, and she loves, she loves gin. Any place that socialises in gin, she's on it. And uh, she actually phoned me up the other day and she went... She went, okay, you're a journo, tell me something Are Negroni's a thing now because every single person in my bar today has just ordered a Negroni That is all I've been making all day And I've had, you know, obviously like six, seven hour shift or whatever She's just like, that's what I've been making all day, I've not made anything else well, One gin and tonic, apart from that, all Negroni's And you're right, it's, it seems to be kind of staples that we that we have now um, I'd add to that old-fashioned... Yeah, I, was to abs-
5: Sorry, yeah. I was about to say that after the, the Mad Men craze, so in between the Espresso Martini and the Negroni came the, the the old-fashioned after Mad Men and, you know, drinking, basically making whiskey more palatable, you know, adding a bit of water, a bit of sugar, lifting all of that flavor that's hidden, you know. Um, and, you know, it's a great way to consume whiskey and it's just a fantastic cocktail. And I think, you know, like you said, it, it was a huge trend for people to drink old-fashions. Um, and, you know, it's just great to see how bartenders are shaping shaping what's it's, drank.
4: It's still my favorite cocktail, actually, the old fashioned. And again, you can play with it. I, I like mine with chocolate bitters, um, you know, rum base. Rum, yeah, rum base as well. Again, that, that, that's the thing. People look at cocktails and go, yeah, I don't like martini too strong. Don't like old fashioned too strong. Don't like this, don't like that. But what people don't realize is that you can play around with it. You mentioned you love Negroni's. I actually don't like April that much. It's too bitter. But I, so I swap mine out with April, which is a bit softer. So you can still enjoy the classics, but you can have it your way. And it's just the versatility of cocktails, which is astounding.
2: That's a good note to start to uh, sadly and reluctantly draw to a close on. But we can't go without plugging Aqua and its new menu, which as we sit here is coming out in a couple of days. That'll be a few days past by the time we go to broadcast. But what sort of thing can people expect?
5: Um, It's going to be a drink for everyone. I mean, there's a lot of drinks on there that I love, a lot of the drinks that I wouldn't particularly order. We have, I mean, one drink, you know, which I was reluctant to put on, but, the, you know, mainly for the... what the people wanted we put a cappuccino martini on so a twist on the espresso martini and this is just you know, an easy twist that people are going to love and it's not necessarily it's probably the worst bartender's cocktail of all time but really you know, we're giving people options for what they want to drink and then if someone wants something a little bit more crazy we've got you know, mushroom cocktails on there have got some peanut style cocktails on there um, lots of champagne and, uh, and a lot of rum as well so it should be, it's looking good for autumn winter
2: and, of course, if you want to sample the, uh, the tasty menu here at Aqua, it's just a drop-in situation. You don't have to book ahead. Exactly. Jen-Anne, what's on your agenda? Just
4: writing more articles. I have a feature called Five Cocktails to Try in London this month. Again, trying really to open up cocktail culture to people who, who are interested, as we said earlier in the show. I'm a big proponent of flagging up creators and naming people who create good cocktails So yeah, so every month just take five cocktails. It might be something that's trendy or something that's a classic that's been twisted or something that's served in an original way and just kind of getting that out there and getting people's names out there and the venues out there and kind of the price. People can adjust their budgets accordingly. I'm still presenting a show about cocktails where I get bartenders to come on and we make cocktails on film. That's a lot of fun, especially after the cameras stop rolling. Uh, Still doing a bit of spoken word, still doing all sorts of crazy creative stuff.
2: And I think anybody who's interested in dipping their toe into the waters of cocktails. That doesn't quite work as an idea. But
4: Vodka means water. No, whiskey means water of life, doesn't it? A
5: lot it? of them do. Um, what? Really? Yeah, a lot of the actual words for spirit will, will be a translation of wa- water of life.
2: Yeah. Oh, well I don't feel so bad then. Okay, no. if you want to dip your uh, toe, tongue and taste buds into various kinds of water, most of them alcoholic, hopefully we've given you a few uh, leads into doing that. Janan's going off now to prepare a hippopotamus fling. Miles is going to go and put mushrooms in someone's drink. I'm going to go and dry out. Thank you for both for joining us here at Aqua. Well,
5: thank you, David.
4: Thank you very much.
2: And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Miles Dunneke and Jan and Jay. Thanks to to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf.